Before we dive in, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Matrix Sport, the sponsor of this week's episode and one of the fastest growing, largest digital asset platforms based out of Asia. More on them soon to come. We don't really pay much attention to what's outside the U.S. because economics says we're not supposed to. Everything is a right. closed system when in fact it hasn't been a closed system in three quarters of a century. All right, everyone, welcome back to On The Margin. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Jeffrey Snyder of Alhambra Capital Partners. Thank you so much for coming on, Jeff. Good. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Glad to be back. Yeah. Usually, I'm, I'm very uh, jealous about your knowledge of the, the euro dollar system, but today I'm just admiring that magnificent uh, beard that you've grown. <laughs> I've changed my face a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One day for me. One day for me, too. Just wanted to give you a quick reminder that in three weeks from today, probably less from the time that you're listening to this, on August 11th through the 13th, we are doing the most important conference that we've ever done at BlockWorks before, Bretton Woods, the realignment. We're doing that up in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, at the same hotel where the original Bretton Woods was hosted back in 1944. We're going to be talking about the past, present, future of the monetary system. And guys, this is not one that you want to miss. We've got the head of Macro at Fidelity, previous speakers on the show, Pippa Malmgren, Lynn Alden, Luke Groman. It's going to be a ton of, ton of fun. You're going to meet great people, and there's going to be amazing content. Um, head over to the website, www.blockworks.co, and go to our events page. I will also link it in the show notes here. If you put in the code on the margin, you're going to get 5% off. That's from me. Click it. Get it now. Thank you later. Let's get into it a little bit more uh, and talk about, um, you know, one of the almost challenges when, when we have conversations. I almost just don't know where to start because there's so much interesting knowledge that you have. Uh, but I'd love to kind of start with this idea that's become almost a popular narrative or meme, which is that uh, the world is just awash in dollars right now. There's this money printer go burr, which we've been hearing ever since uh, March of 2020 when the Fed stepped in in a big way. You, I heard in an interview back in April, actually said that a lot of the problems that we're dealing with is because of a global dollar shortage. So I'd love to just use that as a jumping off point. What do you mean by that? Yeah, where would anybody get this idea, right? I mean, it's only yeah. everywhere. It's, everybody says it, so it must be true. And the Fed says it, the media says it. It's in every single financial media article that's ever written about quantitative easing or what central banks do. They all say the same thing. You know, QE is pouring trillions of dollars in the real economy. So how in the world can it possibly be any different, right? I mean, mm -hmm. anybody even asking that question comes off as conspiratorial or just plain insane because it's, it's, it's not even – it's not just a popular narrative. It's so accepted and so deeply ingrained. Nobody even thinks that they should be challenging it yeah. except for – all the places where these things are actually real, where the monetary system is actually real. And when you look at what's going on in these places, these markets, these money markets, you say, something's not right here. Something's very different because we keep here, as you, as you pointed out, especially since last March, the Federal Reserve has flooded the world with dollars. I mean, Jay Powell went on 60 Minutes last May and said, yes, I flooded the world with digital dollars. I did that. We printed digital money. He lied through mm -hmm. his teeth, but he did that. And yet we still see these markets that are telling us, sorry, what flood? There is no flood. This, it's just not there. Mm. So what we're saying is, you know, going back to all the way to August of 2007, the first global financial crisis, which people still don't really understand was a global dollar shortage, was not a temporary one-off event. It wasn't like we had a dollar problem. It wasn't subprime mortgages. It was a global dollar problem. And it wasn't like that dollar problem was fixed by quantitative easing. And we can, we'll get into why that was and the things like, uh, you know, what we mean when we say that. Uh, I think we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
But since 2007, 2008, what we've seen and what these markets are telling us is that the dollar system that exists, this global dollar system, it wasn't a one-off temporary event in 2008. It was a complete change in condition. Now, you know, you can say it, well, it broke down, but that, I think that's almost too severe. The dollar system still works, but it doesn't produce enough dollars for economic growth or for economic uses and even financial uses too. So what we end up with is a condition where the system that actually is supposed to supply mon money and dollars into the global economy, into the global financial markets, doesn't supply enough of them. And as mm. you know, I mean, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about uh, absolute levels or whatever else. I mean, if, even if the system is producing more dollars than it did yesterday, if it's not producing enough dollars, it's a shortage situation. And that's really what we've had since 2007 is a period of rolling dollar shortages that become more acute or less acute based on uh, conditions. So when Jay Powell says, you know, I flooded the world with money, he knows that that's not true. He's flooded the world with bank reserves, which are something else entirely. Yeah. So walk me through exactly how this works. Like, let's uh, pick something out of there and just say the great financial crisis was not actually caused by uh, mortgage securitization run amok, but actually it was caused by this global dollar shortage. Describe like why that first narrative may or may not be totally true and, and how would a global dollar shortages have have led to what happened in 2008? Well, first of all, I mean, the, the, the dollar, I mean, securitization itself was part of that dollarization, this euro dollar trend uh, in the pre-crisis era, because the point was, why would you want to securitize a bunch of illiquid mortgages? And the mm -hmm. reason is to take advantage of these monetary resources that the euro dollar system had created, including something called repo or repurchase agreements. Repo is sort of the backbone of this entire system. And the reason you really want to create mortgage bonds and mortgage-backed securities is so that you have a liquid security that you can then pledge as collateral and repo. So even that was sort of an offshoot of the growth in the euro dollar system in, 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 to begin with. But specifically, you know, focusing on repo and collateral, which was a major fault line and a major point of failure in the, the first financial crisis, you know, mortgage bonds simply got to be, as in a lot of bubble situations, they got to be ridiculous. They got to be insane. It wasn't just subprime mortgages, but even some of the regular mortgage bonds. And some of the assumptions that were, were used to create these things and then value them proved to be false, and the system couldn't could not uh, withstand questioning those valuations, and it couldn't withstand uh, those assumptions becoming false. What I mean is that you know mortgage bonds were used as collateral and repo, which meant that you know huge financial players were funding their positions in this repo market using this collateral at specific valuations, like at ridiculously high valuations, in some uh, in some cases. And as those valuations started to come down a little bit by a little bit, what they found is that when you don't have the collateral, when the collateral becomes revalued in this system, there's really no alternative. You can't go to the Fed. You can't mm -hmm. go anywhere else because you have to, you're depending upon repo, repo market funding. So as the collateral starts to come, come down, it comes down in value, it's not used in the same way in the repo market, that, that induces a, a self-reinforcing monetary tightness because – at the end of the day, without repo funding, without sufficient repo funding, you're left with a position that you can't fund, and therefore you have to end up selling it. And once you start selling, selling as in any bubble situation, distressed sales lead to fire sales, which lead to depressed prices, which lead to further problems down the road. So in many ways, what happened in 2007-2008 was classic case of bubbles coming undone, classic case of really a bank run. 
but with the one kind of quirk where it wasn't a bank run in the same way we might be familiar with the Great Depression, you know, people lining up outside of banks looking to liquidate their cash, you know, their deposit liabilities into cash assets. It was a bank run where banks were the only ones panicking and they were liquidating assets because they couldn't fund those positions anymore. So the mm -hmm. dollar shortage in 2007 and 2008 was sort of a a classic case of a bank run, but but it was in this in these uh, these markets and these monetary places that are hidden shadow money, that kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily or wouldn't wouldn't immediately think of as being the same thing as a classic bank run. So the mm -hmm. dollar shortage was really a systemic problem where all of the things that had uh, for decades that had led to growth and credit, growth and globalized economy, growth and in the global economy, those things started to fail, and the monetary resources that had nurtured that kind of growth suddenly became not just short, they disappeared in many places altogether. Collateral was one of those things, credit default swaps, derivatives, and what it really comes back to is when you look at this monetary system, what it is, isn't money, I mean, it's not like there's stacks or pallets of cash somewhere, you know, in bank vaults, and that's where this money, that's the money that, that backs the system. It's all really bank liabilities and bank assets. It's a bank-centered system. Mm -hmm. So it depends upon banks creating balance sheet space and then doing all of these shadow things, and there, therefore that's where all the growth comes from. So if you have banks that are retreating or, 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 or uh, coming up with problems, they don't have enough collateral, you know, they can't lay off risk, they can't manage the risk, balance sheet risks the way they used to, that creates the negative pressure of balance sheets constricting or just being restrained is enough. And that's where the dollar shortage come from. It's really the banking system that decides that you know we can't we can't support the monetary uh, efforts that we used to do beforehand. Yeah. So if I had to basically sum some of that up, and I'll I'll, I'll get my definition out, <laughs> yeah. and you can tell me how I'm wrong. Uh, but basically, if you had to define the euro dollar system, you'd call it a banking system that uses the underlying collateral to supply money creation in the form of dollar-based derivatives, essentially, right, as opposed to actual dollar assets. So yeah. these offshore banks have the ability to create um, credit, money, whatever you want to call it, to fund overseas projects. Uh, but ultimately, then when that starts to reverse and the value of that collateral goes down and down and down, what they actually need is real dollars to shore everything up. And that's why you get these kind of persistent dollar shortages and financial crises. Or real collateral, because what you see then is that you know, there's all sorts of collateral in the system. There's risky collateral like junk bonds or back, you know, back then there was subprime mortgage bonds, which were a small part of the system. There was also a lot of regular prime mortgage bonds. Mm -hmm. So there's all, <clears throat> excuse me, there's all sorts of collateral. And when one type of collateral becomes a problem, it herds everyone into the good types. And at mm -hmm. the top of that collateral pyramid are U.S. Treasuries and U.S. Treasury bills. Those are the best of the best collateral. So right. one of the things you look for is... When the prices of treasury bills in particular, but also treasury bonds start to go up and you start to think, well, why are treasury bonds going up so rapidly in price, yields coming down? One of the things driving that is a shortage of collateral. And that's what wow. we've seen during these periods. Global dollar shortage, you see uh, treasury bond yields go down rapidly as we're observing, you know, right now, which is, you know, it, it's a telltale sign that there's a collateral problem in the euro dollar system. And, it's, and by the way, it's not just offshore and overseas. The euro dollar system intersects with the domestic system. Really, you know, you know, there's not really much difference there. I mean, 
most of the money and credit creation and balance sheet stuff that happens outside the U.S. just happens outside the U.S. But U.S. banks, even the you know domestic U.S. banks, are just as much participating in those offshore uh, markets as anyone else. And there are huge credit flows, monetary flows. And that's another problem, too, that we talk about is that mo- the line between money and credit has blurred so much that yeah. they're almost interchangeable terms. So whatever a bank does and wherever that bank is located, chances are they're operating in this global monetary system. And there's really, I mean, you don't really want to make too much of a distinction between the domestic system and the, and the offshore system because it's really different parts of the same whole. The massive flows, cross-border flows between the U.S. and outside the U.S. And the major problem is that we don't really pay much attention to what's outside the U.S. because economics says we're not supposed to. Everything is a closed system when in fact it hasn't been a closed system in three quarters of a century. So you have that you know, bank-centered piece offshore, but yet it's not really offshore. It's a really a global monetary system that's predicated on banks expanding their activities or being able to expand their activities. And collateral, repo, derivatives, those things are all key pieces of it. And when, the, when they start to fail, what we find is that there's really no recourse to it. Because as I said, I mean, you have bad collateral that's no longer user in the, usable in the repo market or it's not usable in the terms that you want. Where do you go? You right. can't go to the Fed. Well, you can, but you can't really go to the Fed and say, I want to I borrow collateral from you. I want to borrow collateral and then use it in the way that I want to. So it's, it's, a, it's a systemic problem because you know, we don't really have a backstop. We don't really have a central bank. And this stuff operates outside the United States in U.S. dollar terms. It's not actual currency. It's all just ledger money. It's all virtual currency. It's really a virtual currency. Mm. And, and uh, there's really no top-down approach that says, okay, when this thing goes bad, how do we solve it? We'll just, you know, we, can't, we can't just get in there and, and uh, you know, create some elasticity in virtual currency, reserveless you know, global currency. Mm. Reserveless virtual uh, ledger money. Where have I heard those phrases uh, before? <laughs> What's going on, everyone? Excited to talk to you about one of my favorite new companies in the space, a company called Matrixport. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know we spend a lot of time talking about this crazy environment of low yields that we're all living in. The big question is, if inflation is around the corner, how are we all going to protect our wealth? Well, Matrixport has some really, really interesting solutions I think you should check out. And the big thing is they, they do so many things, it's almost hard to cover everything in 30 or 45 seconds or whatever we have here. Two things that I want you to walk away with. One, they allow you to earn up to 30% yield. Two, they are leveling the playing field between institutional and retail investors. A little bit of background about this company. They are one of the fastest growing platforms based out of Asia. The really cool thing about these guys, they're literally a one-stop shop. Everything you need, custody, spot trading, OTC, fixed income, structured products, lending, asset management. These guys literally do it all. When they walk me through the demo, my jaw was on the floor the entire time. Here's what they've basically done. All those crazy structured products that are available to institutions that allow them to earn so much yield, they've basically taken them, packaged them up in a way that anyone can understand it, and they made it available to their entire audience of investors. That is just a freaking awesome thing to do. Very cool mission, but also it allows you to manage your risk in a super sophisticated way and earn huge, huge yields on this platform to protect you from the pernicious effects of inflation. So for example, you can start earning 30% in APY on USDC today if you go to onthemargin.link slash matrixport. Again, that is onthemargin.link slash matrixport. I don't know what you're waiting for. Go check them out. Thank me later. 
You know what, actually, one, one really interesting uh, point that you brought up there that I want to return to when we start talking about inflation versus deflation is this desire for real, a really pristine form of collateral in the form of uh, U.S.-issued Treasury securities uh, and how that kind of explains some of the quote-unquote mystery that's going on right now in the bond market. But before we get there, I actually want to zoom out and just give some more context um, as to why this system really exists in the first place, right? If you go all the way back to the Bretton Woods Conference back in 1944, there was an economist uh, there named Robert Triffin who pointed out uh, what has since become known as Triffin's Dilemma, which is this issue with being the, uh, or this problem that arises consistently with being the issuer of the, the global reserve currency. So Jeff, could you talk to us a little bit about what uh, Triffin's Dilemma really means and how that how that impacts kind of the growth of the euro dollar system in general well what he said was look you can't have a national currency tied to a reserve asset in this case gold be the international currency because let's start i mean what does a reserve currency actually do now, it's something people don't even think about i mean most people think well it means we get to t you know oil is priced in dollars well mm -hmm. that's 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 a symptom of it but a reserve currency's job is to make sure that there's enough currency around the rest of the world that you can have all of these different systems transact with one another very efficiently. Think about, you know, if you're if you're somebody in Japan and you want to buy goods from somebody in Sweden, you can't use yen because yen is worthless in Sweden. You want to have a currency that's useful in both places. But in order to be useful in both places, there has to be enough of it in both places. And that's yep. where the reserve currency, U.S. dollar, but before then, the pound sterling was useful and plentiful in a lot of different places. So it could perform the role of a U.S. Current, uh, a global reserve currency. But the problem with that is you have to, again, you have to have more currency available all over the world than there is gold reserve for that currency. And what happens in a gold exchange situation is as there's more and more currency around the world to perform the job of the global reserve, it's going to be converted into the gold into gold reserves, depleting the national stockpile of reserves and therefore creating a currency crisis. So what Robert Triffin said was essentially, he called it a paradox, which was that, look, you can't have a national currency backed by a supply of national reserves be an international currency because eventually it will lead to the destruction of that system, which is sort of what started to happen even in the 1950s, as early as the 1950s, you go back to November of 1960, there was a formation of something called the London Gold Pool, which was a bunch of countries got together, mostly European, and said, we're going to pool all our gold reserves together with the United States because the U.S. has already lost so much, so much gold because there's all of these global dollars around the, around the world. And we don't really know where they're coming from. Mm. And that's where the euro dollar sort of started to come in. In the 1950s, and really, we have no idea where the euro dollar actually came from. There's a lot of different stories, and, and, and a lot of you know, it almost doesn't matter. But by the late 1950s, there was a, a centered on Europe, but a global marketplace for U.S. dollars. This euro dollar system that developed, and a lot of it was because of Triffin's dilemma, Triffin's paradox. How do we get around this problem where we have U.S. dollars linked to uh, national gold reserves? And the euro dollar was sort of a elegant solution to that problem, especially because it, it was a bank-centered, reserveless, you know, ledger money stuff that we don't we don't necessarily link to the U.S. gold reserves, although some people did. But it was sort of an elegant solution, elasticity in a system that had become inelastic. And one of the reasons for that inelasticity was that in a globalized this globalized economy, post-war economy, sort of surprised economists and, and officials. They didn't expect closer cooperation, the need for more reserve currency because it was always believed that, you know, national economies were isolated, you know, uh, closed off systems. 
in this globalized economy that came out of the post-war era sort of surprised me. And you need the monetary system, monetary resources, global reserve to make sure that happened. So you had this natural tension where there was growing and increasing demand for a global reserve currency with Triffin's paradox, which was a national current, national currency tied to national reserves just wouldn't be able to serve that demand. It would always be too restrictive. And then in comes this this global monetary this euro dollar system, which was we won't even link to any reserve any reserves at all, but we can still provide the roles of a global reserve currency because it's essentially a bank centered system, ledger uh, reserve list, ledger money, distributed ledger, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I um I'd be curious to get your opinion on this. I mean, so. Maybe there are different, almost a set of criteria for what a reserve currency and a domestic currency is supposed to do. The definition that you just laid out there, which what you need from a reserve currency is that there needs to be enough of it for countries to make transacting more efficient and easy. Totally agree with that definition. But what I would also say, one of the things that a domestic currency needs to do is actually protect the time and energy of the citizens of that country. Right. Because what you don't want to do is the government to be able to just print as much as they want. And then essentially the they can redirect uh, the time and labor of of the uh, the citizens of that country. So one of the the issues with being the issuer of a uh, a global reserve currency is that you're conflicting with these needs right from being the international reserve currency and a domestic currency, because on the one hand, the U.S. has this great some would call it a privilege, some would call it an obligation to supply the rest of the world with dollars, which gives the dollar a very privileged status in some senses. But at the same time, that's actually not great in some senses if you're a citizen of the United States and you're essentially having your time and energy diluted by this need to supply the rest of the world with dollars. Would you agree with that idea or, or am I off base? No, there's definitely a natural tension between those two assignments. Mm-hmm. And you know what Robert Solomon said. Robert Solomon was one of the one of the early uh, real students of reserve currency and the euro dollar system. And what he's what he said: there's three pillars to any reserve regime. The first is liquidity, which is what we just talked about. The elasticity. Mm-hmm. There's got to be enough of this currency so that it's available everywhere to be useful everywhere. The mm-hmm. second thing is adjustment. And the adjustment function, I think, is somewhat misunderstood too, and probably mostly misunderstood, which simply means we live in a dynamic world. Right. right. The way we do business today is not the way we're going to do business 40 years from now. And the way we look back, the way we did business 40 or 50 years ago is nothing like the way we do business now. So you need a monetary system and a global reserve that can adapt itself with the times. And that's one of the things the euro dollar did really, really well, because it started out in the 1950s, which we think of as an analog era of you know very limited to capacity. And it moved with the times, especially technology. Uh, uh, communications technology and things like that. And so it adapted itself to the way business worked. You had a monetary system that was very adapted to the global to the needs of a globalizing economy. That's the second part of it. But the third part, getting to where you were, Mike, was confidence, right? Mm-hmm. We have to have confidence in this currency system, which is this kind of the same thing as saying, we don't want to be irresponsible to the domestic needs. We have to match these right. You know, the foreign needs, the overseas needs, the globalizing economy needs money with the domestic use of the dollar. And really, the euro dollar system, again, provided another elegant way to do that because, in one sense, people didn't know it was the one creating the dollars. So they were hidden. We didn't know all this money was going. But really, global growth never really, dis, you know, it, there was no disunity there. It wasn't like we were printing a bunch of money and it was a bunch of asset bubbles outside the U.S. 
that suddenly came home and caused all sorts of domestic problems. Oh, my God, we've been printing money for all these – you know, banks have been printing this virtual currency for all these years, diluting our, 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 our uh, hard-earned global uh, domestic growth. That's not what happened. In fact, in many ways, we, you know, we took advantage of the fact that the globalizing system created a lot of legitimate growth and effort outside the U.S. So, yes, we, expand, we had expanding eurodollar footprint that led to a lot of legitimate economic growth outside the U.S. as well as yeah. some legitimate economic growth inside the U.S. So there was never, it was never the situation where we had monetar- excessive monetary growth leading to you know, the same types of inflationary types of outcome that had happened in the 1970s when yeah. we didn't kind of have the eurodollar system the way, it, the way it was supposed to. It wasn't matured yet. So yeah. between the, you know, the 80s and the middle 2000s, we had a lot of legitimate uh, global growth mixed with some some of these uh, uh, asset bubble problems that became uh, more serious in the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah. And the, the one last question that I want to ask you on this before we move into how this system impacts inflation versus deflation is I, I do want to point out that a lot of a lot of folks um, in kind of our circles tend to point to inflation as kind of the the big boogeyman, right? But I, I kind of tend to draw everything back to income inequality. For me personally, I think that's the, the most vulnerable vector uh, that the United States has today, just because as a student of history, almost every period of major civil unrest has been preceded by record income inequality, almost down to a T. And when you look at these sort of conflicting, these, these tensions between being the issuer of the the international reserve currency and, and a domestic issuer of currency, I think you could actually trace a lot of the income inequality back to these two tensions, right? Because there are policy decisions that have been made to protect the confidence in and strength of the US dollar kind of at the expense of wage growth in the United States, right? And you can actually look, there's this great website, WTF happened in 1971, which was kind of the death of the Bretton Woods system and where we finally went off the gold standard, right? And it's like, as soon as that happens, you know, the, the amount of money that's out there goes like this and wage stagnation goes like this and just the gap. I mean, you can really see a lot of it started to happen in 1971 post gold standard. I, I wonder, do, A, do you agree that uh, income inequality or, or wealth inequality is one of the biggest problems that we're facing today? And do you think the system overall contributes to it? Yeah, but I, I would disagree a little bit in the fact, in the respect. First of all, August 1971, we were way off the gold standard in, you know, 1960. That's really what the lesson of the euro dollar was. August 1971 was just the official close of the Bretton Woods system when it had ceased to function in any real capacity in the 1960s. And you could even make the argument of the formation of the London Gold Pool in 1960 that Bretton Woods was technically done. So mm-hmm. this monetary, you know, excessiveness, all this, I mean, the great inflation, all that, they, that came about before 1971. Mm-hmm. And that was really a function of monetary evolution as we're talking about here. And really, it's hard to match up you know, like, for example, you can't look at um, specific monetary statistics, first of all, because they were obsolete even back in the 1970s. But second of all, because you have you don't really know. Again, there's two roles for the for the monetary system. There's an overseas role and a domestic role. And if we see that, you know, monetary growth and whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, re- repo market growth, for example, how much of that repo market growth is is going to domestic side, you know, making sure that the domestic economy has the monetary resources to grow and, and to, to create the, the, uh, the sustainable situation where wages can advance and how much of that repo market growth is, you know, we need dollars overseas. We need, we need dollars overseas so the rest of the world can grow and how much of the, how much of the rest of the world growth benefits, come, you know, those benefits come back to the domestic U.S. economy in the form of, 
you know, global trade, which has been right. deflationary. Uh, so, you know, that's, there's deflationary benefits to that. So it's, it's really difficult to, to untangle the monetary system. And, you know, is it producing inequality in wages in the U.S.? Well, in some sense, maybe it is. But at the same time, it's also providing benefits that maybe we don't appreciate because it has lowered the price of goods all over. You know, it has allowed technological adaption, economic growth, industrialization all over the rest of the world, which has contributed to, you know, the domestic system, too. So I I tend to take more of a a holistic view of the entire global economy. But what you said is exactly right, though. When the thing breaks down, however it does break down, and we talked about August 2007 before, income inequality and inequality of opportunity, to me, that's the biggest thing. It's inequality of opportunity. That's where you really start to see these flashpoints. That's mm-hmm. where these things become serious. When you have a period of prolonged breakdown where you know economic growth maybe isn't what it used to be, and again, it doesn't have to be like 1929, 1930, where everything just collapses. Economic growth could be growing, but growing at a different and in in slightly lower rate over a prolonged period. That's a huge problem. And the way that problem is going to manifest is in exactly that. The lowest parts of the economy or the, you know, the lowest tiers of the income part of the income section of the economy. That's where you're going to see lack of opportunity start to manifest. And that's where you're going to see discontent, and malcontent manifest. And, it, and it, it becomes more than an economic problem, it becomes a political and social problem. And the longer it goes, the, lower the, the, the longer this lower growth rate continues onward, the more you're going to see that creep up the income, income ladder. Because before it was just people at the bottom who didn't have jobs. You know, maybe they thought they'd be unemployed for a while, but now they're unemployed for long periods of time, which then you know, people who do have jobs, but maybe they're not great jobs, they start thinking, well – you know, I could be next on the unemployment line and be there for a long time. Plus, I don't believe I have any future anymore because it doesn't really look like the labor market's all that robust. So I can't I can't move up the income ladder like I thought either. So right. it's really, you know, the lack of growth rate, prolonged lack of growth rate becomes that 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 symptom, which is a political and social symptom as much as an economic system. And the way we can explain that in the last 13 years is that we have this monetary drag that you know, a global dollar shortage, which means the monetary system, this bank reserveless virtual currency system hasn't been providing the monetary resources to maintain the same pre-crisis level of growth, which means it becomes a hindrance, a drag on growth, which then cr- leads to income inequality from the bottom. Of course, in that situation, you know, there's always going to be people who are doing well and people are going to be doing super well which becomes you know even an even more stark example of the problem which is we can't get enough legitimate sustained economic growth to make sure that we don't have such a huge gap between the haves and have nots yeah i think it's that gap right that's the kind of psychological aspect that's harder to there's something it it really does it and it's not it's not like you know uh, some people tend to think of it as oh what you know a bunch of whining crybabies you know this is the greatest system i mean we've produced so much wealth that you know poor people are more likely to be obese than starve i mean yeah, that's true, but you're still you're whistling past the graveyard here because people do perceive levels of economic growth, and when they change, rate of change is everything. And when yeah. the rate of change becomes less, we get a little bit less economic growth. And you think, well, a couple percent of growth is not doesn't sound like a lot, but over a long time, we're talking about trillions upon trillions of dollars in GDP or output, whatever you want to categorize it, that doesn't happen. And really, mm-hmm. that's an enormous burden, or enormous enormous deficit. That, you know, you just can't overcome, especially when, number one, nobody knows it's there. Nobody talks about it because everything you hear is, oh, this economy's booming. 
Everything's great. Even in 2021, people are talking about a booming economy. It's, it's unbelievable. We yeah. haven't seen a booming economy in a very, very long time. So maybe we just don't know what it is. So number one, we don't really know we have an economic problem. Number two, we can't really quantify it. But most, but by and large, most people think, well, it's, it's just a pe bunch of people who are whining. Yeah, I know. I think you're, and I think they're completely missing the point. Um, and I, I mean, it is interesting. Like you see, the the Wall Street Journal just put out this article that you know record number of people are are actually leaving their jobs. And you know, you can go ahead and say, hey, this is just the millennial Gen Z whiny uh, generation. I think you'd largely be missing the point. Um, and what I will say is, like, you know, I, I wrote this series of, of posts basically on on the GI Bill. And if you look back at the end of um, World War II. Uh, and actually, just throughout history in general, when there are these big wealth redistributions or economic resets, they actually tend to center around the same three things, which tends to be uh, education, um, home or land ownership, and access to credit. Uh, and sometimes that comes in the form of cancellation of debts. And if you look back at the GI Bill that got passed at, in, I think, 1944, or it was right at the end of uh, World War II, it focused on these three tenets, right, which they gave heavily subsidized education, heavily subsidized housing, like zero down payment, super, super cheap financing for mortgages, and really, really cheap uh, access to credit to encourage entrepreneurship. And you had this gigantic boom, right, that rode for like 80 years. And now if you look at today, you know, people are looking at the price of homes and say, hey, look at what house, look at what the housing market is doing. It's that's great if you own a home right now. It's also completely unaffordable to an entire generation. And speaking, I'll hazard a guess and say I'm a little bit younger than you are. But like my generation, nobody thinks I'm going to graduate from college and buy a house. It's completely – it doesn't even enter people's minds yeah. anymore. Um, and people and to my age, you know, speaking of that, I mean that that's such a foreign concept because it was yeah. taken for granted. It was a given. And there, I, have, I have nothing but sympathy for people your age and the younger generations because you guys have been totally screwed over totally screwed over and what's made it worse is that as you've been screwed over people my age are just looking at you like a bunch of spoiled whining crybabies right and it's just um, it's it's unbelievably frustrating because you're you, as you said before we're totally missing the point and it's mm -hmm. really in one sense to defend people my age it's understandable because they don't pay enough, close enough attention to realize that there are these underlying problems because what most people have been told is that Something happened in subprime mortgages in 2008, and quantitative easing fixed it. So as far as anybody else is concerned, the economy has been absolutely fine, except for that one little bump in the road 13 years ago. And that is so far from the truth. And yeah. people your age have no idea what an actual booming economy looks like because we haven't had one. We've yeah. had this dollar problem that has prevented economic growth. And it's worse outside the U.S. where there's, there's probably a little bit more awareness of the economic problem as well as the dollar problem. Because outside the U.S., they do pay more attention to these things because they kind of have to. When the value of the dollar starts to go up, indicating dollar shortage, people outside the U.S. don't have the luxury of sitting back and saying, what's going on here? Because their own local currencies are getting pummeled. They're seeing yeah. all of the negative consequences of it. But by and large, it's still, again, it's a global problem. Lack of economic growth has manifested into all of these, you know, primarily income inequality, but all of these other uh, problems too, which is, you know, billionaires taking advantage of the situation because they have the ability to take advantage of the situation, whereas nobody else does because the, the, the traditional format, you know, economic, the rising tide lifts all boats. You've probably heard that before. 
Sure have. That's, that's been gone for 14 years, since August of 2007. We haven't had that kind of ability. And that's why you see not just social and political fragmentation, but economic and monetary fragmentation too. People you know, around the world are looking for alternatives because they can't even ask the right questions. They can't even get you know, the right frame of reference to say, what the hell is going on here? And yeah. you know, I think it, it, it's manif- really it's it's worse for young people because they've grown up into a system that's completely broken, but nobody knows it and nobody knows what to do about it, which just makes it sort of you know it sound like it's a hopeless situation. What you just said is complete. I mean, it's still ringing in my head. You know, people your age are going. I'm going to go to college, but I'm never going to own a home. I mean, that's just that kind of despair and destitution is. is I mean, already should be a ringing alarm bells, but. You know, it, it's 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 gotten that to be that serious that we really should be paying more attention to these things. Yeah. And I'm not making you know, I, I don't want to say like I'm bemoaning my circumstance or anything like that. It's just funny because it does tend to trickle down into a whole bunch of different aspects of behavior. And people define one of the defining characteristics of the millennial generation is that, oh, we're focused on uh, experience over things, right? And right. people have generally just you said- You can't afford oh, the things. They can't afford the things. <laughs> I know. They can't well, afford I, the I hear things. that all the time. I'm like, well, well maybe they can't afford them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's unbelievable. Oh, millennials hate cars. No, they probably they can't afford. I mean, yeah, we're making we're making broad generalizations here. We are, but the we fact are. that we're making broad generalizations again is it, it should be alarm bells should be ringing here because, you know, yes, they're broad generalizations, but they're true in so many cases that the broad generalization actually applies. You know, millennials don't like cars. Well, no, they can't they can't afford them, and that's that's one of those. The economy's booming, but yet. You know, the economy's booming, but yet millennials have lived in their parents' basement. I mean, that was the joke for a long time, and I think it's still probably true. And it, it wasn't is. because they like mom and dad or they like, you know, freeloading off of mom and dad. As, as you just said, not even can they not buy a house. They can't even afford to rent. They can't yeah. even afford to – I mean, the economy's booming, but an entire younger generation can't afford to leave their parents' – I mean – it's one of those things. It's one of those paradoxes which, which should get you to ask questions about what is really going on here. And yeah. the first step is okay, the economy's not booming, and the next step is why is it not booming? And in a lot of cases, it's easy to see because you, there's all sorts of evidence out there. There's a lot of things that are pointing in the direction, as we said before. You know, there's these markets. Start with interest rates, for example. Bond yields falling is a sign of tight money which is the exact opposite of what we're taught in school. It's the exact opposite of what you hear on Bloomberg every day. It's the exact opposite of what Ben Bernanke or Jay Powell says. But yet it's historically true. Milton Friedman in 1960s called this the interest rate fallacy. What he said was that when money is tight, as I said before, and tight money doesn't mean that money is contracting. It's just not growing enough to supply the money the growing economy needs. What will happen is Interest rates on safe assets will fall, not rise. And again, the primary example, the 1930s, Great Depression. What happened to interest rates in the 1930s, which nobody would, would confuse with an inflationary period? Absolute deflation the whole time. Interest rates fell, 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 fell. And the exact opposite in the 1970s, the Great Inflation. What happened to interest rates and the Great Inflation? They got up into double digits and even beyond. I mean, you had U.S. Treasury yields by 1970, 1979 that were like 15%. Mm. So it's the opposite. And what we've seen since 2007 is interest rates all around the world, what have they done? They've gone down, down, down. And not because the central banks are buying bonds, but because of this euro dollar, global dollar shortage. It's an indication that money is being tight and that has restricted economic growth. 
even though GDP is rising. It's just not rising at the rate it used to, which is manifesting in all of these things we're talking about, which is an unbelievably bad situation. We have lost generations here, which mm -hmm. is uh, something that's very hard to come back from. Yeah. And now we've kind of made it, I, I do want to transition to this idea of inflation versus deflation. We've made it back to that idea that I flagged earlier in this, in our chat, which was the connect, like why everyone is so confused about what's happening with interest rates, given if you just paid attention to financial media, you would say, look, we're experiencing inflation, it's happening. And yet at the same time, you're looking to yield uh, on the 10 year just kind of steadily march lower and lower and lower, uh, right? Which kind of tells you something very different. So, you know, you, you kind of hear this phrase a lot that the bond market is the singular source of truth, right? So when you look at the bond market today, what is it telling you? Exactly what you just said. I mean, Irving Fisher said this more than a century ago. Mm -hmm. Long-term bond yields are essentially a, a, snapshot, or a snapshot of expectations for growth and inflation. Mm -hmm. Legitimate economic growth, sustainable economic growth, plus inflation. That's really how you decompose bond yields. So if you have bond yields, I won't even get into term premiums, which is something economists have come up with, and we'll just mm -hmm. we'll leave those off to the side. But by and large, if you see, again, interest rate fallacy, if you see in, uh, bond yields falling, especially longer term bond yields, that's saying some combination of lower growth and lower inflation, usually those two things together, which is the opposite of what we're hearing when we've been hearing over the last year or so, which is we started out with, you know, Jay Powell's flooded the world with dollars, they're inflationary dollars, and then comes the federal government along behind to, to just throw a bunch of money into the real, I mean, essentially helicopter money, paying people, paying businesses, all this. How could this not be inflationary? And the problem is that they don't realize this, the deflationary background that continues to exist, that continues to be a huge problem, you know, 13 years later. What the bond market is saying is that, okay, there was a, there was a, a period there, January and February, we had to sell off and yields rose, we had a reflationary trade where the bond market said, there's a lot of stuff going in the right direction. We've got, you know, Uncle Sam's all over the place. We've got vaccines and maybe an end to the pandemic. And that looked like growth and inflation might might turn out to be a little bit better than as bad as we thought it would be in 2020. And of course, that so much was made of that, which was wasn't really that big of a change. So even in the best days of inflation in January and February, the bond market was saying, it was only a small probability change. The probability of growth and inflation getting better was, you know, it bumped up a little bit, not a whole mm -hmm. lot. And it bumped up a little bit from 2020 when we had the worst recession since the 1930s. So it wasn't like we were going from, you know, bad recession to 1970s style inflation. The bond market just said things got a little bit better. That's all that happened. And since February, Treasury yields have obviously been dropping, actually, since the middle of March. It's, it's, yields have been dropping since February around the rest of the world. Again, this is a global system. This is not just a U.S. system. It's not just a closed economy. We have this global bond market signal that is saying, no matter what you see in the U.S. CPIs of late, no matter what you see in the U.S. goods economy, which has gone crazy, the rest of the global system is seeing rising deflationary forces or the return of deflationary forces that are becoming more and more significant. So no matter what the U.S. CPI is going to be, you know, for June or uh, inflation indications in the U.S., the market is saying deflationary circumstances are by and large, not just the base case, but, you know, the inflation case, which was always an outlier, is becoming less and less probable all the time. Yeah. So let me just present kind of the uh, almost a devil's advocate uh, view, right, which th these have been the most and I, by the way, I tend to side uh, more with you here that we're headed. We're still in a very deflationary environment. But this is what 
has felt kind of compelling to me. And both these arguments come from a guy named Russell Napier, uh, who was a deflationist for a long period of time. Really love the way this guy thinks about it. Uh, So the first argument here is that um, one of the big inflationary um, forces that we might be seeing is kind of the... uh, the relationship that we have with China and the Chinese labor pool. Because if you looked at kind of the, the last uh, 30 or 40 years, right, there's been this big trend of offshoring uh, U.S. labor to China. And essentially what we've done is we've taken that $1.4 billion population, however large their labor pool is, within the United States. And you've essentially said, hey, we're going to essentially way lower wages, which has been a super, super deflationary uh, force. When you fast forward to right now, there's actually pretty good evidence that um, for China, uh, they are actually trying to reverse that trend, right? They've had numerous opportunities to devalue their currency recently. They haven't taken it, which signifies a shift um, in terms of what they're actually trying to do. <laughs> I already <gonna> disagree. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, one more. Well, well, let's say even if you didn't buy that, let's say that uh, there is certainly tensions in between China and the United oh, yes. States, right? There are political tensions. And maybe we're not heading towards a, a Cold War, but maybe there is more of an emphasis on reshoring production and bringing yes. some of that labor back because of political if not economic reasons, uh, which should be very inflationary. So what would you, what would you say? No, I disagree. I think those things are exactly right. I think the U.S. and China are moving in different directions, but for very different reasons, and that it mm. doesn't lead to inflation, it leads to more deflation. What we're seeing oh, is the U.S. and China, the Chinese economy is essentially dollarized. People don't know that. Mm-hmm. CNY is dollarized. The Chinese cannot choose to devalue their currency. It's entirely up to the euro dollar system. And if there are fewer euro dollars, then the Chinese currency is going to fall which is what mm. happened in 2014 when we experienced a big dollar short. 2014, 2015 was a massive dollar shortage that really wrecked emerging market economies. Mm. So it wasn't the Chinese devaluing their currency. It was the euro dollar, euro, global dollar shortage, which moved the price of the dollar up. Anything that becomes short, the price of it's going to go up. That means simple economics. So the Chinese, the PBOC, does not control the exchange rate of their currency, which, again, most people don't believe. We have this idea that central banks are omniscient, and central to the monetary system, and none more so than the communist Chinese. I mean, you have an authoritarian government that's given the the PBOC free reign to basically implement its authoritarian economic policies, and yet what you see time and time again is the PBOC is along for the ride. Whatever Mm -hmm. the euro dollar does, that's what happens. So no, I don't believe that the PBOC has, you know, is intentionally going on this path. They're starved of dollars like everybody else does. And what mm-hmm. has happened in Chinese, um, especially monetary policy, has been a reaction to this dollar shortage. And you can see it right on their balance sheet. Chinese, the People, uh, People's Bank of China's balance sheet on the asset side is primarily made up of foreign assets, U.S. dollar assets that had built up over the pre-crisis period because they were a dollarized system. Since 2011 and really 20, the end of 2013, no more dollars. Dollar shortage has meant that the PBOC, the monetary engine of the Chinese economy, which is dollarized, no longer has dollar resources to expand its balance sheet. And that has led to a whole range of problems which create internal monetary drags as well. So the Chinese economy has experienced a hell of a lot more problems and a hell of a lot more trouble than people realize too. The Chinese, the Chinese system is, no, is nowhere near strong. And in fact, that's what's driving, especially since the 19th Party Congress in October of 2017, this idea of quality growth rather than quantity growth. A major shift, major economic shift, which is a response to this overriding U.S. dollar, global dollar problem that has been, that has been in, in place since 2007. So this fragmentation between the U.S. and China 
is itself a symptom of the larger problem, which is the monetary shortage and the economic consequences of it. And so in that respect, it's just a further continuation of the deflationary trend. Mm -hmm. Got it. All right. Well, but yeah, I mean, look, I mean, what Russell said, I mean, we all know it's true. The U.S. essentially offshored its industrial capacity. You know, all yeah. those. I mean, I grew up in the Rust Belt, so I know I saw all those closing factories. I, you know, I saw, you know, my friend's parents that got thrown out of work. I mean, all that stuff actually did happen. Yeah. The problem is that, you know, that the reversal of that and what the Chinese called rebalancing or now they're calling it dual circulation, which is the idea that we're going to the Chinese are going to build their own economic island that's no longer derivative of global economic factor. You know, they're not going to just become, you're not just, just going to be the factory of the world. So as they had been, um, it, <laughs> it's, it yeah, hasn't yeah. worked and it's yeah. not going to, it's, it's sort of one of those pie in the sky slogans that they come up with when they don't know what else to do. And that's really kind of the point I'm making here is that these deflationary forces are driving Chinese economic policy as much as anything else. And as we see, I mean, uh, and really pretty much the, whether it's the PBOC or economic authorities, they are responding to these same euro dollar conditions. In fact, just last week or the week before, I forget which one, the exact day, the PBOC cut the RRR rate, which to me is a huge euro dollar warning. What they're basically saying is we've got dollar problems ahead and we're getting ready for them. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the second uh, point that, that Russell makes, because I'm not going to be able to, <laughs> to you know, debate what you just said. Um, but which is basically that um, there was a big shift. You know, there's this kind of, if you think about a bubble as a belief that everyone believes that isn't necessarily true or correct, uh, there's been this saying for basically since the originally the Greenspan put, now it's the Powell put, whatever, don't fight the Fed, right? Don't fight the Fed. You just called them omniscient. Some folks would call them omnipotent, but basically... Do whatever you think the Fed is going to do. Don't don't go against them. And at the same time that there's this just uh, it's canon, right, to believe that the Federal Reserve or, or central banks around the world control markets, that might actually not be true. Right. And when you look at how that <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the th it's canon in the media. It's canon mm -hmm. in academic circles. In actual practice, nobody believes it. Again, that's why bond yields are the way they are. In the mm -hmm. bond market, which I mean, the bond market is not this little tiny sliver of you know niche nice. market. We're talking about the biggest thing human beings have ever conceived, and it's not just U.S. Treasuries. There's you know German bonds. There's euro dollar futures. There's derivatives. There's I mean, it's it's an immense, vast store of information, and all that information says, "Don't fight the Fed." What do you think we've been doing for the last fourteen years and making money off it? No, so this idea that you don't fight the Fed, that's a media creation, and that's one that the Fed itself has has, has nurtured because of what the Fed actually does, which is not money. It doesn't do monetary policies. It does expectations-based expectations, policies, yeah. which means I need, you to get, I need to get you to believe that I can do what I say I can do. And what better way to get you to, to do what I want you to do than to, to get everybody to believe I'm omniscient, right? It's hmm. all smoke and it's all a lie. Yeah. And it's all a lie that's been crafted and created out of a bigger lie, which was the great moderation, which there was a great moderation, but... The, the big lie was that the Federal Reserve was responsible for it. And what we've seen is that, no, it was this euro dollar system maturing and spreading global growth and globalization around the world. The Fed had almost nothing to do with it. They rode its coattails. And that's why when it broke down in 2007, suddenly the Fed, which was supposedly omnipotent, this Greenspan put, where the hell was it? When push came to shove, the Fed was just completely incompetent and completely ineffective. We had a global financial crisis that was the worst since the 1930s. Where was your Fed put? And the bond market said, 
wait a minute, <laughs> all these things we used to believe, we've just seen in practice how it doesn't work that way. And that, that message has been reinforced time and time again over the last you know, 14 years, where we've seen repeated dollar shortages, repeated breakdowns in collateral, repeated quantitative easings, which is another one of these, these um, clues that the Fed isn't what it is. If the Fed was omnipotent and omniscient, one quantitative easing would be enough, right? I mean, the whole name, quantitative easing, it's easing that I've picked the right number for. So why do you have to continue to repeat it if you've picked the right number? So it's again, it's this don't fight the Fed. That's just a myth. It's something that's been created and nurtured by official channels because nobody knows what's going on. It's very easy and comforting to think that there's an ideal technocrat, you know, a Socratic, you know, enlightened philosopher who's sitting in the Federal Reserve pushing the right buttons at the right time in order to create the ideal outcomes. I mean, it's just... Yeah. Pardon my language. It's all horseshit. I mean, I don't. I don't believe that for a second. No, no, I know. It's, it's, it's yeah. pervade everybody. But you're right. Every yeah. it, you know, outside the financial system, people don't even know how to read interest rates because of it. Yeah. You know, it, it's 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 a pervasive myth. But inside the system, it's not. It, people realize. You know, you fight the Fed. Hell yeah. These yeah. people have no idea what they're doing. Well, uh, you know, I mean, even just the idea of the enlightened technocrat, I do think there are two groups of people in this, two types of people. And one type of people actually believe that the people in power and in know what they're doing and there's some grand plan and they're using data and systems. And then there's the other camp, which I fall into, which I think everyone at every level is completely making it up as they go along. And I particularly, I actually think that's a much better uh, worldview. But I, I want to stay on the subject here and maybe I'll phrase it in like a different way and say, use the 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 jumping off point that quantitative easing is not actual broad money creation, right? Uh, that's base money creation, very different things. Uh, if you were to look right now over the last year though, 27 I call it base money creation either. <laughs> or base money creation, but there is- It's there creation are... of bank reserves. Creation and I know that's where the confusion begins because Federal Reserve, bank reserves, how is this not base money? And mm. the truth of the matter is it's a very limited use token. It's not like you or I can walk into a grocery store with a bank reserve because you or I can't get our hands on the thing. What a bank reserve is, is a ledger account that a bank holds with the Federal Reserve. And in the exchange of one asset for, a, I give you a bond, you're the Federal Reserve, you buy it from me. What happens on the bank balance sheet actually matters, not the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. So the Federal Reserve balance sheet rises and the bank reserve is the offset of that transaction. Whereas on the bank's balance sheet, not much has happened. I used to have a treasury bond. Now I have bank reserves. Yeah. It's an asset swap. It's not money printing and it's not base money. It's not like I can walk into a grocery store or I can give this bank reserve to somebody outside the, in the banking system because you can't. It's a specific use. Uh, it has a specific use and it, that's all it ever is. But that's the key that the Fed has used to fool people into believing this money printing bullshit because it sounds like it should be money printing. It's the Fed. It's bankers. How is this not money? And when you actually sit and think about it, you realize, well, it really isn't. It's an interbank form of ledger accounting. And it's not even a good one because, as I said, if the bank doesn't do anything in response to this asset swap, that's all it is. It's just an asset swap. That's nothing more than that. So it's not even in, it's not even base money. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, it's it's really helpful because I have no background in financial education. So for me, it's really helpful to understand the history of fractional reserve banking. Like if you it money is is a belief system, right? And if you think about it, everyone at one point been. believed that money that gold was money, right? And then at some point, people started to put that gold in a box and they traded bank receipts, 
right? And they said, this equals this. And essentially, at some point, that layer of abstraction, that belief transferred from the gold to the this, which is the, the IOUs essentially from the bank. They actually did that so successfully that that belief permanently transferred to that layer of IOUs from the commercial banking system. Then we eliminated gold in general. We took away the base thing. Then, but the Federal Reserve still said, hey, but there needs to be something underlying this whole thing. And they created this vague concept that honestly, probably 95% of Americans don't even know exist, which is this idea of uh, central bank reserves, right? And that's why, to me, this is how I think about it, is it's just not that particularly useful. You don't need it. The layer of abstraction of belief has already gone one layer up. You don't need anything backing it anymore, at least in the current system. Bitcoiners would argue, gold bugs would argue, but like, that's how it's Yeah, but what they're, what they're saying is it's, it's all about confidence, right? It's all right. about, okay, when we, we know that free markets are messy. We know mm -hmm. that free markets are going to go into deflationary periods. And that's really the problem. And deflationary period is an, a period of essentially inelasticity. Whatever mm -hmm. form of money you have, and, it, and you're right, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be gold, it could be bank life, it could be paper currency, or it could be this euro-dollar vir reserveless virtual currency system. Right. Whenever you get into a period of inelasticity, what history has shown is that you kind of do want somebody standing behind it saying, you know, think back to Walter Badgett. I, you know, lend freely at high rates on good collateral. So if you're a good bank and you're experiencing inelasticity, you got some collateral, I'm a central bank, I'm going to provide you liquidity because there's really no reason for you to suffer under these circumstances, right? right? So there's this idea that goes back to confidence in the system, which is that central banks need to stand behind them. And so what bank reserves have done, in the, especially in the later era, is perform that sort of role of confidence. You're right, they're monetarily useless. But as long as people don't ask the right questions and think about this too deeply, the idea is that it's supposed to reinstill confidence, not reinstill elasticity, because the Fed believes that elasticity is a function of confidence itself. And that's where it all really goes wrong. But bank reserves have a function that is entirely tied to confidence. And when you realize that fact, all these other things really do start to make start to, to click into place. Because the system is essentially saying, you know, lower bond yields and everything else. We want some elasticity. We need some money growth here. And the Fed is saying, I don't have any money growth to give you. I'm going to try to raise your confidence level. Let's see if that works. And of course, yeah. it doesn't. So, so, so what? The Fed isn't creating base money. It's creating this, this idea that I can make people confident. And of course, repeated use and repeated failure, what does that do? It only leads to less confidence, <laughs> not more confidence, which is, right. of course, the Japanese example, which is why they're on QE23. Yeah. Good thing we're we're learning from that example. Yeah, right? not, not, not following it exactly step by step, right? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that's so another, you... you know, sorry. I mean, that's another frustrating aspect here is that we have a specific example of all of these things that is about twenty years ahead of us. Yeah. All of the things have been pioneered in Japan. That of course we've adopted step by step here. When everything about them in Japan has said, "Don't do this. This is all wrong. It will not work." And of course, our idiot officials, these you know, Socratic enlightened philosophers have said, well, that's just Japanese. The Japanese are fools. They don't know how to do these things. When we do QE, it's going to be effective. And of course, mm -hmm. it's not. It's, they never consider that maybe this expectation stuff is just flawed and unworkable. Yeah.
Absolutely. Well, I want to, you know, in, in this space, you're kind of transitioned to the last thing that I want to pick your brain on, uh, which is kind of the growth of, of crypto and, and Bitcoin in general. Uh, right. So maybe let's start with Bitcoin and then kind of go more to CBDC stable coins. And then finally to what I've used kind of the most important area, which is like uh, DeFi and kind of that crypto bucket in general. Um, so when you talk about Bitcoin, a lot of the arguments that you and I are talking about, well, first, I'm not sure if you think this whole system is destined to end in failure, right? But I guess, you know, the, the Bitcoin or a gold bug argument would be to say, hey, I mean, they disagree with you from the start, right? We're creating yeah. so much money, we're debasing the currency, we're stealing people's time, etc. What we really need is a solid layer of confidence or belief. We need a, a system that works globally so that people, uh, governments can't rob people of their time and energy. Therefore, we have this thing uh, called Bitcoin. When you look forward into the future, what do you think the role of these kind of monetary assets like gold and Bitcoin are? Do you Think there's a role to play are they important like how do you just view them in general i think let's talk about the, the digital currency space in general mm. i don't want to specifically say bitcoin or one or the other because i don't know but i believe mm. digital currencies are the answer and i did believe that you know some period down the future there will only be digital currencies mm. and i believe there'll be private digital currencies not central bank digital currencies because cbdc's are just laughable jokes they're, they're, they're going to exacerbate that are, yeah. that are just trying to catch up and pretend they know what they're talking hey, oh my god everybody's talking about digital we need to come up with a digital sounding currency and this is so ridiculous that it's, i mean nobody's going to take them seriously i believe that you know dig, central bank digital currencies are are extension of this confidence game that nobody's really going to take seriously because there's nothing to take seriously but mm. those things aside digital currency i mean there's an elegance i mean they have been you know going back to it's satoshi nakamoto's genesis block you know back in january 2009 the reason had the blockchain has proliferated is because it's such an awesome idea yeah. now that it has been set free because it's such an awesome idea and because of this dollar shortage has opened the door for something to create to uh, take over the role of elasticity not the money printing that's what i argue it's the elasticity that has let the led this technological revolution proliferate in advance despite numerous attempts to struggle or to uh, snuff it out and you know you know strangle it in the crib so to speak because you know along the way i mean you go back to 2014 the irs ruling about crypto being you know it's got to be taxed under capital gains and all this other i mean they have tried to snuff out crypto from the beginning and it has only become more and more and more and more sophisticated more elegant more useful and i think it's because we have the perfect marriage of function versus opportunity and need we've got mm. a need for a monetary system that's elastic and workable because central banks don't know what the hell they're doing and it's been nothing but a problem and you have what could be a really good solution to that very problem even though the vast majority of people who are buying crypto especially bitcoin are doing it for the all the wrong reasons mm. they're buying bitcoin because they think they need store value function of money because the federal reserve is printing so much when, the, when underlying all that, the technology is about dollar shortage, elasticity, creating elasticity from an inelastic system. So mm. you ha even though you have those two temporal disconnects, where you know people, you know, right, the the price of the the, the the price of cryptos are going up based on the wrong idea, but the expansion of the technology is proliferating on the right idea, which is dollar shortage. And so eventually, I think what happens is the right idea just wins out. Now, what that actually looks like, I mean, who the hell knows at this point, but I think when you have competition, you have good technology, smart people, lots of incentives, opportunity, all of those things combined, it leads to the right answer. Yeah. Can you explain exactly what you mean by that, how the, the underlying kind of technology actually leads or, or solves the 
the problem of uh, elasticity and actually a dollar shortage system. What do you mean by that exactly? One of the problems with the dollar shortage is how it, how the system actually works, which it's 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 a very recognizable to crypto. It's a distributed ledger, but it's right. a distributed ledger that only banks get to do. Got it's it. a bank centered mm. ledger that everybody uses. And it leads to a lot of information asymmetry, which is a major complaint about Wall Street. Why do people hate Wall Street? Because they're riding this wave of information asymmetry, which is essentially a form of rent. They've been given yeah. a privileged position of understanding the monetary system, and understanding the monetary ledger. Plus, they can see inside it in a way that we can't. So they have all this information asymmetry that they haven't earned. They don't really intermediate in the system. They're just rent seekers. So DeFi... You know, de decentralized finance is a way to eliminate all that. Let's yeah. level the playing field with complete transparency. We don't need information asymmetry where we have a distributed ledger that everybody has access to. Yeah. And what will happen is then it won't be the rent seekers who come out on top. It will be the people with the best ideas. And that's really what a capitalist system is supposed to be. It's supposed to be, yeah, we make a lot of mistakes. It's very messy and it's not, you know, it's not nearly straightforward, but over time, the best ideas float to the surface and they're the ones that become enacted upon. It's not about, you know, all of these, you know, again, rent seeking. It's about, you know, almost meritocracy. And so I think that's the way to move forward because, and that's really the potential in blockchain technology is to level the playing field, transparency, all the things that are really missing. So the Euro dollar system was kind of that in the beginning, but it was a very narrow, narrow distributed, narrow distribution of the ledger system. And over time, it became it became essentially a problem where those using it and those developing it and those maintaining it were giving a privileged position, as the Austrian economists always say, cantillion effects. Those who could create money, those at the top of the monetary pyramid, they're going to benefit from it the most. They're going to benefit first and they're yeah. never going to want to relinquish that position. And so, you know. Because of that, you know, the, over time, the system changes its own character from one that's an elegant solution to a specific problem to essentially a, you know, bureaucratic structure. And that's yeah. really what's happened. And, you know, blockchain can break down that, that those barriers and kind of reset things back in the way they should be. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the way that I view uh, crypto overall is that it's a big paradigm shift and pa big paradigm shifts tend to they need to be a or precipitated by a big catalyst and then a narrative. Um, and I think the narrative is almost always bullshit. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the reasons it strikes me, you know, like even if you go back to the internet, right, one of the big narratives in the internet was this is gonna, this is the democratization of information is gonna level the playing field. Well, you know, fast forward, you know, 25, 30 years, it has done actually the exact opposite of that. It has led to a lot of wealth creation, right? But you have the biggest centralized companies in the world that are internet companies today. And people are always like, well, the narrative is always changing in crypto. And there are big ones that everyone knows. There's the store of value narrative. There's the banking, yeah. the unbanked narrative. And it's all bullshit to be, yeah, in no. my opinion. And right. I think what actually is just happening is you're looking at a bottom-up re-architecting of the financial system. And that's not as sexy. That's not going to cause a crusade, right? That's not going to do well on Twitter. But like for me, that's that's what it really is. So, and I agree. It's yeah, and I think that's exactly, and it's it's that what's driving that is the dollar short, the idea that we need. There's a there's a place for crypto because the dollar system's broken, but it's not broken in the money printing way. It's broken in the in the in the inelasticity way. And I point to El Salvador as a perfect example. Uh, mm -hmm. El Salvador just a little over a month ago said, "We're going to use Bitcoin as a uh, as as a." legitimate legal tender in El Salvador. And the reason is people don't know. Why would El Salvador do this? And the Bitcoin, you know, the Bitcoin maximalists, 
they're kind of taking a hands-off approach to this because it's not the narrative that they're driving, which mm-hmm. is, as we said before, you know, through a Bitcoin maxillus or a gold bug, the issue is the dollar's going to crash. The dollar's going to disappear because it's been printed, it's been devalued and debased to death, and it has no future. We're here along comes El Salvador saying we're going to use Bitcoin, and the reason is they have a huge dollar problem, a dollar shortage. They're not afraid of the Fed printing too much money. They can't get enough dollars in their system. And so yeah. what they're doing is they're saying we need another form of money because we need some elasticity down here. And it's, it's again, it's what's driving crypto is not, the, as you just pointed out, it's not what most people say. And, you know, I don't, I don't think it really matters in the, the narrative in this stage because there's the need and the opportunity that's driving the underlying fundamentals. And it's some, but you're right, at some point there has to be a narrative to drive its mass it adoption. But yeah. we're, I don't think we're anywhere near that stage yet. And that's really the sad part of all this is that as much progress has been made, not enough progress has been made. I'm a huge crypto fan. I love digital currency, love blockchain, but it's not ready for prime time. Nowhere near ready for prime time. No. But it's, it's something we can look forward to it's something we can look forward to positively and say that, yes, there is potential to get this right here. But as you just pointed out, there's also potential to get it really wrong. <laughs> like anything totally. else in the world, there's, there's a path to the good and there's a path to the bad. And most likely it's probably to come in somewhere in between. Somewhere in, but yeah, somewhere in yeah. between. Yeah, really but as long as it's workable and better than what we have now, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, that idea of transparency that you just laid out, so many people miss that idea. And that, I mean, I just need to digest a lot of what you just said. But, uh, you know, there's this story, you know, Matt Levine wrote about that stuck with me. It was, it was, it was this bit of, uh, you know, malarkey that uh, BNY Mellon did, basically, and they got fined like a billion or $2 billion. But basically, that the idea was that, that they waived, they were getting all this feedback that people didn't like um, foreign transaction, uh, foreign exchange transaction fees, right? So they cut the fees, but actually what they did was then they timed when the transactions would clear at a specific time of day where the bid ask spread was largest. So they would recapture the profits. Recapture on the, the fee the that nobody knew exactly. about. In a different, and that nobody knew about. <laughs> and to me, that's such a great example of why the system just sucks. And, and then the system is, oh, hey, uh, you guys, you did something that you know should be illegal. Here's a little fine slap on the wrist, businesses, you right. cost of doing business. And well, you're more this. important than the peons who are getting screwed, right? right. And that's what it really comes down. We need you banks because you, you banks are the center of the system. And, you know, we're going to kiss your butt because we need you. We don't need the peons because, you know, who cares about them? Yeah. And it's like, you know, one that's, other I mean, resent, The resentment is, is understandable, even sympathetic, because a lot of it's true. And it's, right. But it's also true that we need these banks. I agree. And that's where right. I come. I'm like, you know, people think I'm a cheerleader for the euro dollar way of doing business. I'm absolutely not. I'm, I'm one who will say this is ridiculous. I understand why it developed, understand why it attained the position it did, but that doesn't mean I agree with it. Yeah. And really, it's, it's, in a lot of ways, you, it was an elegant solution to an individual problem that happened 70 years ago. That doesn't yeah. mean it's, it's an elegant solution today. In fact, it's not. It's a bastardized system that has privileged the wrong sorts of people. But that's... But again, that's in some ways, that's just human nature. All of these reserve currency systems, all of these economic arrangements follow the same pattern. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a problem, you come up with a good solution to it, and it works for a while, and then it gets bastardized, and then it becomes a problem. And then you have to come up with a new solution. I mean, history is circular, not linear. And that's really what we're doing. We're repeating these same cycles where we had this ledger, euro dollar form of currency. It did a lot of good things, did a lot of bad things, especially toward the end. And now it needs to be replaced. 
And I think mm-hmm. the biggest problem is that most people don't know that <laughs> they can't mm-hmm. they can't connect what's wrong with what's what's going on in their own lives. And that's where it becomes really, really messy. And of course, you know, you know, the adoption of crypto is going to take time. And so we have, a, you know, we don't have a solution prearranged or prepackaged ready to go. And, you know, we have a bunch of just, just a massive confusion everywhere. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Jeff, you've already been super, uh, super generous with your time. And I have to do one uh, shameless plug. If folks were still listening here, enjoyed this, uh, Jeff's going to be joining us at our conference, uh, Bretton Woods from the 11th through the 13th up in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. We're going to be talking about a lot of the same stuff. But uh, Jeff, aside from uh, going to the conference and meeting you there, what's the best way for people to follow you, learn more about what you're doing at Alhambra? Well, I, I publish everything I do at alhambrapartners.com, which is our, our website blog post. You can go there and find everything. I also have a podcast with Emil Kalinowski. We talk about all these deep deep dive into the Eurodollar system, current events, historical events, and try to make sense of what's really going on. So there's the podcast, Eurodollar University's Making Sense, and then alhambrapartners.com. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thanks so much, and uh, we'll see you soon. My pleasure, Mike.